certainly employers now have to pay more attention uh, to their wage structures, even if they feel that, you know, that they're not discriminating or don't have no intentions of discriminating. They have to worry about how does this appear. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Ronald Oaxaca, the McClellan Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Arizona. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his work on gender differences in worker pay, an area he pioneered in the 1970s. Ron, welcome to The Work Goes On. Thank you, Arlie. I'm very happy to uh, participate in this noble endeavor. Really glad to have you here. Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Fresno, California, Central Valley. And you, did you go to elementary school there? I did indeed, yes. And where did you go to college? I went to what is now known as Cal State University uh, at Fresno, and maybe not particularly uh, uh, notable, but um, Ray Fair at Yale was a classmate of mine at Fresno, one year ahead of me. So, somebody's heard of the institution. So who? So economics must have been pretty strong if you were there. Well, they had a very good program. It was in social science uh, college rather than business. I think they've moved over to the business college now. But uh, as I say, I was there. It was an exciting time to be an econ major there. And Ray Fair, as I said, was was there. He was a year ahead of me, and we had many stimulating uh, discussions. I'm curious. Your name is, uh, many, many people have a hard time pronouncing it. Yes, including those in Mexico. <laughs> is that right? How do you pronounce your name? Well, it's pronounced, pronounced Oaxaca, but, you know, some people that I've spoken with in Mexico might say something like Oaxaca, and, and I said, well, no, it's Oaxaca. They said, oh, it's like the state. I said, it is indeed, exactly. Well, what did your mother and father do? Well, my father was a policeman, and then he passed away early, uh, and uh, my mother worked for the county health department all her life, and, uh, you know, so we're just a middle-class family in Fresno, California, yeah. What about, do you have brothers and sisters? I have one sister, a younger sister, and she lives in uh, in Fresno. Now, I know I know your wife, Amy. Yes. Is she from Fresno, too? Uh she grew up in Fresno. She was actually born uh, in Newell, California, which was at the time a concentration camp for Japanese Americans. But um, she grew up in Fresno, and that, that's basically her hometown. I didn't know that. I didn't know that she was in one of those concentration camps. Yeah, yeah. well, she was very young then. I mean, she left the camp probably by the age of two. Fascinating. Uh, well, now, of course, uh, you went to graduate school in economics. How did that happen? Well, uh, originally, I can tell you, uh, my thought was, uh, for some reason, I wanted to be uh, a naval officer. 
Cal State Fresno did not have a Naval ROTC, so I joined the Naval Reserve and was active with them, and I had a a four-year deferment, in effect. But by the time I was reaching my senior year, one of my professors, a very inspiring professor uh, by name Dale Bush, convinced me that I should go on for graduate work in economics, PhD program, and I decided I agreed with that. And so I declined orders to go to uh, officer candidate school, but I had a report for active duty for two years in the Navy, and then I got out, and that's when I arrived at Princeton. So you were a gob. <laughs> a gob. Isn't it, I, when I was a kid, they called uh, naval, naval uh, ordinary Navy guys gobs. Well, or swabbies was, swabbies was the other term. Yeah, that's right. Were you on a ship? Well, uh, I was on a ship only for uh, two weeks of training while I was in college, you know, in the, in the reserves. But uh, I did, you know, recruit training in San Diego for almost three months. Uh, And then I reported to college. And then after I finished, graduated from college, I was then stationed in uh, San Francisco for uh, about a month uh, awaiting orders for communication school. And that was in Pensacola, Florida. I was there six months. And then I was stationed in ADAC, Alaska for a year. And then my last duty station was back in California near uh, Napa, um, and near Vallejo. And I was there for roughly six months. And then I got out. Uh, after I was out, I uh, showed up at Princeton. How, how did you end up at Princeton? I applied for a number of schools. And uh, I was accepted by Princeton, and but on on the West Coast, I had an acceptance from Stanford. And I guess at that time, I was sort of parochial, so I was thinking in terms of remaining in California. But my mentor and advisor urged me, he said, to go uh, east, young man. And <laughs> and I'm glad that I followed his uh, advice, and I accepted Princeton's offer, and uh, one of the best things I ever did. We'll get to your doctoral dissertation in a second. When you came to Princeton, were you married? Uh, yes. Amy and I married while I was still in the Navy. So you, yeah. you moved to Princeton with uh, with uh, Amy, and then somehow you fell under the influence of Al Reese. Yes. That's an interesting story, too, because when I applied to Princeton, my interest at the time was in what was then termed uh, mathematical economics. I'd, I had minored in mathematics. I enjoyed mathematics. But... During my first year at Princeton, I, I didn't find mathematical economics as exciting as I thought it would be. But some of my classmates, uh, who were a year ahead of me, had taken Al Reese's labor economics course and highly recommended it. And I decided, well, I think I would take his course, and that just convinced me I wanted to be a labor economist. I just I thought it was so fantastic, um, and that that's that's how I ended up as a labor economist. Uh, in retrospect, what what struck you most about him? Well, I, uh, what, I, what I appreciated was that uh, Al Reese, I mean, he had arrived at Princeton just before I showed up. He'd, he'd come from, uh, I guess he was department uh, chair at University of Chicago. But what impressed me was he was right in the midst of this enormous transformation of economic, labor economics from an institutional field uh, to a sort of microeconometric field. And and uh, and I very much 
appreciated being in that position to uh, to sort of develop in that direction uh, with Al Reese's uh, recent hire and uh, I thought it was a fantastic direction for labor economics to go and uh, so I considered myself most fortunate and of course uh, you were a professor of mine as well and in the, in the same uh, mold as Al Reese in terms of pioneering this evolution of labor economics into a sort of a very modern and sophisticated field. Now, your dissertation topic actually has been a subject of a lot of discussion, and we'll have some of it too. Tell us what it was. Well, I mean, I guess I would start with how I happened upon that topic. As you know, Princeton had this requirement for uh, something like uh, second and third year uh, thesis uh, proposal. And I started thinking about it, and I was interested in wage differentials, and I quickly realized that most of the empirical work at that time in labor economics uh, focused on uh, racial wage gaps, but I didn't see much on uh, gender wage gaps. And I thought, well, you know, the data sources would be the same, except, you know, you just go to the gender field and uh, sort your data that way. And that's how I started, on, on gender gaps. And then your dissertation, actually, there I don't know how many papers you've written on gender gaps, but... Uh, <laughs> A lot, I guess. Quite a few, yeah. <laughs> I can't uh, fail to mention, and you should probably expand on, uh, that the Oaxaca decomposition of wage gaps between men and women, and of course it's now used for many other wage gaps, it's so well known that it's actually a, a command <laughs> in the statistical language that many of us use, Stata. Stata, yes. And uh, of course when you were doing it, you weren't using... Uh, a simple laptop you must have had to go to the mainframe well at the time uh, of course we yeah we didn't have uh, personal computers uh, we, we had the mainframe at Princeton and 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 there wasn't the kind of software that we have now so I realized that I was going to have to learn some computer programming so I think it was during the uh, reading period and the Christmas break at Princeton uh, maybe in my uh, beginning of my third year, that I went to the, uh, the Princeton bookstore and purchased uh, a manual on Fortran 4. Never forget, it was written by an engineer named McCracken. And I obtained a computer account, and I worked through the manual and then s started doing my coding and uh, simple things at first, uh, you know, computing standard deviations and variances and things of that nature, and then graduating to inverting matrices. And so uh, I applied that to a, a program that existed on the mainframe, but it's, it's a program that allows you to put in your own code. And so I did my dissertation entirely, you know, with my own code for in inverting matrices and, you know, obtaining variance, covariance. I, I always tell that story to my students, you know, it's because um, now it's pretty simple with, with, with Stata, but that's not what we had at the time. And well, it's more than that, and that now, in fact, you just you just write down the Oaxaca command. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, you write the Oaxaca command, and then it does what you apparently... Yeah, there are some options, and you can have an interaction effect, if you like, in your decomposition, which I, at one point, uh, never used to do, but in later years, I've done that. I've forgotten when the first paper was published. Do you remember the year? Uh, yeah, it, it was uh, it was 19... 
1973, and it, it appeared in International Economic Review. What was the reaction to your work? Very, uh, very interesting. You know, I, I, of course, I, I gave my practice job talk at Princeton, but when I went in the job market, I, you know, I, I gave the job talk, and I think one of the places was Livingston College, you know, in New Jersey. I was urged by the department to accept their invitation to give a paper a job talk, even if I'm not particularly interested maybe in, 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 in going there, but that it would help Princeton and other graduate students get invites. Uh, so I, I did that, and, uh, you know, Livingston College had a reputation. I mean, they were fairly uh, uh, liberal, so this resonated very well with with them I, I the, the methodology was new I mean using this econometric method and basically what we call today counterfactuals um, so I've got a very good reception and that was that true generally at least in terms of my job talks but uh, I can tell you uh, on one occasion and this is after I'd left Princeton I did give a talk on this topic. It was at an NBER conference on income and wealth, University of Michigan. And um, so I presented this work and the late V. Grillicus was in the audience and I could see he was fidgeting a lot uh, and I knew he was going to want to say something. And then he, when I was finished, his hand shot up and he said, uh, well, I'm going to make a statement and they may hang me for it, but I'm going to make it anyway. He says, where gender is concerned, he says, I don't think there's any such thing as uh, wage discrimination. And I said, well, Zvi, I see that they're erecting the gallows as we speak. Um, and, uh, and his argument was, you know, it's a free market, and men and women make their choices, and the choices women are making are optimizing. Uh, for them, and uh, I said, "Well, yeah, that, that's I think that's always true." But I said, uh, "Let's let's." I said, "Let me give you another example. Let's imagine we have somebody that wants to purchase a commodity. The problem is that they can only purchase the commodity from uh, a monopolist, and so they pay the monopoly price, but they walk away complaining and grumbling. And you tell them, "Well, but you could have said no." And you didn't, so you must be optimizing. Or let's suppose somebody mugs you, points a pistol at you, wants your wallet. You give your wallet to them. You go to the police department. You file a, a report, and the police say, "Well, yeah, but you voluntarily gave your wallet to them. You know, you must be better off after the transaction than you were before." So, <laughs> I just didn't think that that logic really carried. <laughs> Zvi didn't really respond, but it's a very uh, kind of a uh, interesting set of examples. Now, I know that your work went beyond just academic activity and that you, in fact, were involved in and have been involved in some uh, litigation where allegations of discrimination yes. were made. Yes. What did, you learn, what did you learn from that? Well, you know, I, actually, I learned a lot. Uh, so the first uh, case I was involved in, and I believe you were as well, it was the AT&T case. And that case started when AT&T at one point, you know, when, when AT&T was a regulated monopoly, they applied for what they thought would be a routine uh, rate increase. And there was a young lawyer at the time, had a Harvard Law degree, which he used to say was 
Harvard was the uh, Stanford of the East Coast. But uh, I think it was Dave Cope. Copus. I remember him, Dave Copus. Copus. So he was working for the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission at the time, and he he read this passage in the newspaper that AT&T was uh, requesting routine rate increase, and he thought to himself, you know, you know, I bet they discriminate against women, and did a little nosing around, and then he filed something that uh, held up that rate increase, and so it ended up going to it was an administrative trial, an administrative judge, and uh, I was recruited to be an expert witness in the case, and John Pincavel was, and you were, and many others. Um, and we were engaged by uh, a consulting firm that had contracted with EEOC. And, and uh, you know, I learned a lot from that. Um, and I remember the AT&T attorney putting me on the stand. And, you know, he asked some questions. Uh, and But one of the things he made a statement, and he said, well, uh, Dr. Oaxaca, isn't it true that your method for measuring discrimination is biased? And I said... Well, I said, I'm glad that you raised that question because you're absolutely correct. It is biased. I said, however, it's biased towards understating discrimination rather than overstating. And before I could explain why, he cut me off. He said, well, let's talk about something else. That was in the morning. And in the afternoon, the EOC attorney put me back on the stand and asked me the same question so I could finish and explain why the, I actually was understating uh, the bias is on a conservative side. So that's that was interesting. And then I learned some things from consulting with uh, with the World Bank. Uh, Mike Ransom joined me in that. And we prepared some report, confidential report for them, kind of looking at their gender wage gap issues and promotion issues. But it was funny. At some point, they had our report for maybe a couple of months. I received a call, and they said, well, we, we received a report. We've read it very carefully. Uh, it's very good. Um, so now what should we do? And I was taken aback by that question because I thought at the time, well, you know, I just run regressions. I mean, don't you have human resources? And don't you guys figure out what to do, you know? And so Mike Ransom and I were summoned to a meeting at the World Bank, and we spent an afternoon trying to discuss what they should do because they had a specific case of somebody that they had hired, a, a woman who started at lower pay grades than men who were comparably qualified, you know, with a PhD in economics and prior experience. And they wanted to be able to do something about that. And it's not trivial because if you say, well, I got a regression here and you just plug the woman's circumstances into this regression estimated for males and then pay her on the basis of that, the problem is that men do not even get paid according to their own regression, uh, only on average, right? Um, and, and, and then the problem was they couldn't just bump her pay because in, in her job title, that would create kind of inequity. And they couldn't simply just promote her because through no fault of her own, she wasn't qualified. And so we came up with a plan for uh, offering uh, a special position where she could tr- acquire the skills necessary to be promoted uh, in a shorter period of time. But that's the kind of thing I had never thought about uh, before in, in, in my research. It, it is true that the remedy for uh, this was a very difficult problem when the Civil Rights Act was first passed 
1964 because there was intentional discrimination uh, that somehow had to be resolved without uh, without really uh, making the person who had been benefiting from uh, the potential discrimination worse off. So exactly. there were a lot of a lot of babies that had to be thrown out with the bathwater, I guess you could say, uh, in order to try to resolve it. I, I, we're getting to the end of our discussion. Um, I, I would like to ask you about one more thing. Uh, I think we've given people a, an interesting aspect of what you've done. But issues about women and, and, uh, and discrimination, which you've worked on for many years, are still around. And in fact, they've even... Uh, come the really I guess the way we discuss it now is there the me too movement mm-hmm. yes what's what's your view about uh, the role that gender differences has played and how things have changed if they have changed since you started working in this area well I, I think in terms of uh, employment practice uh, things have changed a lot I mean uh, certainly employers now have to pay more attention uh, to their wage structures, even if they feel that you know that they're not discriminating or don't have no intentions of discriminating, they have to worry about how does this appear. Um, and things, you know, uh, well, for example, uh, with the the problem that the women's uh, professional soccer team for the U.S. Uh, the, the issues that they've raised about their pay vis-a-vis the males. Um, and that's you know that's that's been in the papers for quite a while now. I think they have it resolved. But I looked into that in more detail, and I I could see clearly what the issue was. And the issue was this: that the men and women have uh, different contracts. And I guess maybe they have different unions. And I felt that if women were paid according to the contract for males, they would probably earn more than males. I mean, given how the women were doing, and and what things you reward. But the the problem was that their contract, they wanted features that were more uh, family-friendly because they had, you know, these family responsibilities uh, that, you know, aren't symmetric with the men. And so the question was how how to structure that contract in a way that they can be more comparable to men in, in their pay but not have to trade off uh, the more family uh, friendly uh, components of the contract that they had negotiated in the past. So, uh, you know, the, the the field has changed uh, changed a lot. We still have discrimination cases, and but I, th- it's clearly there's a heightened sensitivity. I mean, that there was not in the early days. Well, Ron, it's just been a great uh, a, a great pleasure to talk to you, um, and, and I'm uh, I'm so pleased that you could come on to discuss this. And and a little a little I learned about your. You're in Amy's background, I was surprised by. Yeah. Our, our guest today has been Ronald Oaxaca, the McClellan Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Arizona. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University, when we will speak with Ronald Ehrenberg, the Irving M. Ives Professor of Industrial and labor relations and economics at Cornell University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.